Hello, welcome to Keys for SLPs, a weekly audio course and podcast from SpeechTherapyPD.com, exploring keys for speech language pathologists to better serve clients throughout the lifespan. I'm your host, Mary Beth Hines, SLP and certified orofacial myologist experienced in rehab, outpatient, school, and private practice settings. As a curious SLP who embraces lifelong learning, I'm excited to discuss information to help you excel as a professional. Keys for SLPs brings you experts in the field of speech-language pathology, as well as collaborative professionals and caregivers to discuss practical therapy strategies, research, challenges, triumphs, and career opportunities. Engage with a range of practitioners from young innovators to pioneers in the field of speech-language pathology as we discuss a wide variety of topics to help the inspired clinician thrive. Today, we welcome Jennifer Gray for part two of our podcast, Keys to Working with Adults with Down Syndrome. Jennifer Gray is a certified speech-language pathologist with over 20 years of experience treating those with speech, language, and feeding delays and disorders. She has spent the last 12 years specializing in communication and feeding for those with intellectual disabilities and motor speech disorders. Jennifer owns and operates companies offering consulting and direct services, including early intervention and private practice for infants, children, teens, and adults through traditional and teletherapy settings. Her experience working in universities, public schools, private practice, and early intervention has led her to seek more effective therapeutic approaches for those with moderate to severe intellectual and motor speech needs. She currently trains therapists, caretakers, and educators to use methods that work, teaching courses and speaking at local, state, and national conventions. Jennifer Gray continues to seek and develop innovative and evidence-based approaches to ensure functional outcomes for educational, social, and independent living success. The following are the financial and non-financial disclosures for this podcast episode. Mary Beth Hines receives compensation from SpeechTherapyPD.com for this podcast. She has no relevant non-financial disclosures. Jennifer Gray receives compensation from SpeechTherapyPD.com for this podcast. She has no relevant non-financial disclosures. Welcome, Jennifer. Thank you. I'm glad to be back. Good to have you. So, Jennifer, I had the privilege of moderating your two-hour video course earlier this year when you spoke about how to use strengths and weaknesses of those with Down syndrome to improve speech clarity. During that presentation, you discussed working with this population across the lifespan. That course covered a lot of ground. So you came back last week to focus on working with adults with Down syndrome. Again, that course covered a lot of ground. So today, we decided to take a deeper dive and make this a two-part series to talk about three specific strategies that work well with older teens and adults with Down syndrome, as well as fostering independence for people with Down syndrome and how to address regression. Welcome. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. That's all. And we'll try to do it really quick in an hour. Right, right. <laughs> all of that. Okay. So let's get started. Can you tell us three strategies that SLPs can take back to their practice working with adults with Down syndrome that work very effectively? Yes. So it's funny when you start you know, really kind of diving into one disorder or one area of the field, there's these consistencies and then there's like huge differences. And so what I found with the older population, either older teens or adults, is I'm kind of doing the same thing I was doing for my little ones, but my outcomes are different. And so I sort of have to think about it differently. But I still kind of go back to that strengths and weaknesses because I was self-taught when I started reading about things that this population is good at, it opened a whole other side for me because in, in our training and in our schooling, we're pathologists. And so we really come at the deficit side and we kind of focus there, or at least I did, thinking about, oh, okay, this is the problem. I'm going to have to get rid of it. And then we do what we were taught. But as you get into the real world and you dive into your own area of study, and particularly this one, my background helped me, but I had to I had to figure it out on, on my own because I wanted to figure it out on my own based on what I consistently saw or what parents consistently told me. And so in that process, 
I found the strengths. And when I found the strengths, I knew then how I could work with the weaknesses. And I think we all do that, but it was almost an epiphany type thing for me. So some of the things that we do with pretty much all ages in this population is obviously getting them talking, getting them clearer. (laughs) And then you kind of dive a little deeper into figuring out where the breakdowns happen. And so the three strategies that I or areas that lead to strategies that I work a lot on are answering questions. This is the worst. This is the hardest one because as again, going back to the pathologist side, like, oh, okay, we need to work on WH questions. And that didn't work. (laughs) Because once I got into asking those, what happened was they don't answer them. No matter what the WH is, answering any question is extremely difficult. And it blew me away. Like, what in the world is this? They would either completely not answer them and avoid, right, or opt out, especially the little guys. Yes. Or they would give the wrong answer. Or they would give the answer they think you want. Mm-hmm. And so some of the funny, you know, quick stories, just so this isn't such a kind of a negative thing is, you know, with our adults, I've been told that they'll go to, you know, the doctor, regular checkup type things. And some of the questions you're asked as an adult are, do you smoke? Well, a lot of our kids say yes, because they know that the yes is usually what the asker wants. Are you pregnant? Yes. <laughs> you know, and then the parents or the caretakers are like, what? wait, wait. <laughs> right. So it became obvious that these were really important for safety, <laughs> for mm-hmm. pressing knowledge. So if you're in school, your teachers think you don't know things if you don't answer questions well. Right. Right. And it's tricky with this population. It's not like they're guessing or avoiding you know, why is this happening? So we have that safety piece, we have the education piece. And then why is it happening? Right? So how do we, how do we help the question part and which part of it is making this so difficult? I'll talk about that a lot. I hang out there a lot. And then kind of that MLU idea again, right? It isn't really that. But that longer utterance. So our kids talk in that telegraphic speech, they give one word, two words, three words, they leave out grammar and syntax, conjunctions, pronouns, unimportant words, right? And we see that in AAC, we see that in sign language, just to make things simpler. There's a lot of reasons that might happen, which I didn't know either. Trying to figure out why why couldn't we expand utterances if we've been working on this since you were two years old? Why can't you answer questions? Because we've been working on this since you were two years old. And working with the older ones, insurance will ask me that question. I'll say, oh, I want two or three sessions for shorter amounts of time. And they look at the history and they're like, this kid's had services since they were two and now they're 30. I don't know if I should give you more because they haven't gotten better on paper, right? Right, on paper. So that piece of it. And then that kind of that cognitive piece. Down syndrome is labeled as an intellectual disability. And so the cognitive piece, the thinking, is the same as the language. We use the word language, but really it's knowledge, it's learning. And then what do we need for those two? We need more of that attention and focus, which then obviously leads to executive functioning. And then verbal, short-term memory, working memory. We have a lot of synonyms for those. So those three areas are huge, even though they sound simple. And as we look at adults, we talked last time a little bit about regression in Alzheimer's disease and really how do we approach that cognitive memory piece with this population because it's a little different. Mm -hmm. And are we qualified to do that? Is that our area? Okay. So, okay. So taking questions, MLU, and then attention cognition, let's talk about specific strategies for each of those. So for answering questions, and then once they get that, asking questions, what are some of the things that you do in your practice? So part, a big part of the answering questions problem is that we know that people with Down syndrome learn visually Mm -hmm. and don't 
really because of the short-term memory. So I'm going to, these are never in their own categories, right? They right. <laughs> go through all of them. But because we know that they are visual learners, their working memory is poor. So that holding a bunch of useless information in your brain for a little bit of time while you complete a task, right? Mm-hmm. So knowing those two things, how do we use the strength? So the strength being a visual learning style, which means we probably shouldn't do a lot of auditory stuff. And that directly leads to learned helplessness in our later teens and adults because they can't answer questions well. They fail at answering questions well their whole life. And so now they almost have a belief that they don't do this well. Okay. And a lot, so that's part of why the question I'm going to answer wrong comes from because it's not worth trying. And that cognitive piece is, okay, I had to listen to the question knowing I might have a little bit of hearing loss, right? Or something else is going on around me, or she's asking me questions I don't care about at all. It's hard, <laughs> right? That's, that's another piece to it. I have to retrieve the information that you, I have to listen to you, think about it, retrieve the information, try to find the right file, if you will, put that file into kind of a working, okay, I got to put this out there. So now that execution, and then when the execution is poor, so speech or, you know, just how we talk and all the elements of speech, it might get lost in that huge process. And so using visual information is the biggest thing that I use. So if they're good at this and they're not good at answering questions, I'm going to use the visuals to eventually get to the auditory ability where they can just talk without visuals, right? But because they may not have had this when they were younger, remember our adults, they didn't have a lot of the early intervention that kids get now because the, you know, the advocacy and awareness. So we have a lot of adults with extreme differences in ability just based on what they received when they were younger. And so I will find that the the strategies I use for a five-year-old might be the same ones I use for somebody that's 30. I just have to go about it differently. So how do we use those visual strategies? Really the best thing you can ever do is to use things they know about, they like, and are about themselves. And then this kind of leads to that not understanding another person's point of view, because one of those misinformation pieces is, oh, they're so social. They love people and they're, you know, they're kind of gregarious, which is true, but they don't think about your thoughts very much, just for a multitude of reasons, not in the sense of somebody with autism, although autism is more common in people with Down syndrome than the general population. Using those visual strategies will help you a ton. So show, I'll usually for the very first session or even an evaluation, I'll ask parents to send me pictures. Send me, especially right now through teletherapy, which is how I do most of my adult services because it's easier for travel and other reasons and they do better with it. But send me some pictures, send me a video, tell me what they like, tell me what they're good at. I can put those up on the screen and I immediately have buy-in. If I jump right into questions, which I do sometimes because I forgot, I find that I fail right away. And so I'll use that to kind of get their attention and, and keep that focus. Some, but I will warn you, some of the questions sometimes that they will fail at is, what's your last name? They'll give you their first name. What's your first name? I might get the first name and the last name at the same time. And so sometimes I, it's not like, what did you do today? How is your job? Where do you work? We don't do a lot of that initially. It's really just kind of, hi, how are you? Simple conversational yeah. questions. Yeah. <laughs> Those exchanges are hard. Right. Or they'll tell me their name and I can't understand it. And, and so when that started to happen, I was like, oh gosh, you know, what do I do with this? I had, I had assumptions of what this population would do because I spent so much time with the babies. I was kind of shocked to see that unfortunately, I was still working on a lot of the same things with adults. And that brings us to MLU. So that's something that we're focusing on throughout the lifespan So uh, with this population. So can you tell us a little bit more about that? So we kind of use this MLU as a language type assessment, right? So how many words on average do they say at a time? And so we're taught that this is a language issue, that this is something 
about how they think or how they retrieve information, which is very true. That's why we work on it. And Jennifer, just in case we have some people who are not speech language pathologists, we should probably define MLU. We we get into our jargon, we SLPs. (laughs) Longer utterances. So a lot of our little ones will do the telegraphic speech, which sounds something like, mom, go, meaning mom, I want to go. Juice, meaning I want juice. And so they'll use the very specific content words and leave out the rest. And there's a multitude of reasons why they do that. One is retrieval and remembering is hard. On-demand speech is hard. So I ask you a question and it's a little bit of stage fright to kind of repeat it back. And then, you know, trying to find the information and plan it out and say it right in the amount of time that my listener will keep listening. Right. This is why conversations are hard and friendships are hard is can I do that fast enough for my part, my conversational partner to still be interested in me? And a lot of times the answer is no. And so they've learned over time and hearing loss and other medical issues. I got to say something fast and meaningful to get through this question or to get through this scenario. And so working on longer utterances is obviously extremely important because it sets them apart right from the beginning, kind of like just the, the clarity of understanding what name they just told me when I asked what their name was. What I found with these longer utterances is it is those things, but it's also motor. So the, most of these people have dysarthria, so they have muscle weakness, they have low tone. We have a lot of differences in the anatomy, right, of the, of the face. Structural, yes. Yeah, the structural stuff, the physiology. And so we have a system that really isn't made for quick, connected speech. And so when that is also difficult, We use less words because we only have so much time in our culture to to use those words, right, in an exchange. We have to think about, okay, how much can they hold in their short-term memory to give me a longer utterance, right? Because they're also having to think about everything else going on. So for the, try not to go too (laughs) in-depth, but to (laughs) do those longer utterances, again, we go back to the strengths. And one of the biggest ones I found was people with Down syndrome can learn to read really well. I'm going to use this as a very general statement. Some don't. But if we can teach our little ones to read, there's some data that says 18 months. We can then look at the words and then use those to get longer utterances. So it's not like they need to figure it out on their own and plan it, but they read it. And then the motor piece of that is... I now know what it feels like to say those utterances. I now know what it's like to program, breathe correctly, move my mouth in the right way to say six words at a time. So a kid that I could only get two words or one word at a time, if they can read, I just got four and five. And so we read a lot and use that as an AAC strategy, if you will, kind of like sign language or a device or a picture exchange, reading can act as one of those ways to get them used to how it feels to control saying more words at a time, all the parts of those words, and then hearing themselves talk and knowing that, okay, and the those types of things we say a lot, those high-frequency words, reading, and then doing things that they're interested in, pacing boards, those types of visual strategies to help us get to those longer utterances without constant failure. They'll still fail. At times, I had a young lady just last week who would read the whole sentence. And then when I would take it off and like three or four times, and then I take the video off so she can't read it anymore and it falls apart. And so there's a heavy reliance on those. So for our older ones, we also have to work on weaning it off. Right. Generalizing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We have to have that generalization and we have to kind of start figuring out how to get rid of those supports so that they can do that on their own, at least for certain you know areas at a time. Well, thank you. Well, I think that is a great start for our SLPs out there who are going to be working with adults 
with Down syndrome as far as strategies or three areas to focus on. So now we are going to dive a little bit deeper into independence. So previously we talked about why speech clarity may be more important now than in the past. And one of those reasons had to do with some astonishing data about regression, dementia, and Alzheimer's disease. Can you remind us what that means for the future and how these issues relate to those with Down syndrome? Yes. (laughs) So (laughs) since 1983, why they picked that number out of all the numbers, I don't know. We went from a life expectancy in the mid-20s up to the 60s today. So in a very short amount of time, we've helped this population with all the medical stuff that usually would equal a shorter lifespan. Which and it is sounds so like exciting. Yeah. Yes, it is. And it's very exciting. But for me, when I really started hearing that more and more and more, I kind of started to panic because, wait a minute, <laughs> this generation is one of the first that will outlive their parents. So <laughs> that means my job just got harder or a little bit more important because independence, being on your own, doesn't happen at 18, right? It's takes longer. But only if we work on it. And we really didn't. If we hang out with MLU and WH questions, we're not going to help this person. And sometimes we might be the only person in there who works on that, who knows how they learn, or who knows what motivates them. And so in terms of independence, we need to make sure that everything we do leads to them being able to do things on their own, kind of like we were just talking about. Can we wean off the strategies so they can use them? So keeping that piece in mind and knowing that most people with Down syndrome will experience Alzheimer's symptoms by the time they're 40 years old. And I knew this for a long time, but I was working with all my babies and it was like, okay, well, I'm going to prevent a lot of stuff that, you know, so we can move ahead faster and reach those goals from kindergarten to high school. But with this population, knowing that and knowing all of the things that we're still working on at kind of a lower level makes us realize that we really do need to look at memory. We really need to make sure that they master and have clear speech so that we can dive into those other areas of cognition, working memory, executive functioning, so that they can be better prepared and What do we know from you and I when we think about maybe we have parents with the disease or family members with the disease, we read about the disease, we hear about the disease, and the therapeutic piece of those things for anyone on the planet is to what? Keep the brain young. Keep Keep exercising your brain. Exercising your body. Keep engaged, right? But we somehow left that for our category and don't apply it to theirs. And we need to. We need to make sure that we can prepare their brain and their body for this. Can we combat this eventual happening now, whether they're 12 or they're 25? And the reason I really started looking at more at that and realizing how big a problem it could be is when I experience personally people with regression, parents coming to me with 16, 17, 18 year olds or older saying something's different. I don't know what's going on, but all of a sudden they don't talk anymore. They're not interested in what they were interested in before. They only want to do these certain things. I don't know what's going on. Two years ago, they were the life of the party and now they're not. And so (laughs) you have really kind of was like, oh my gosh, what is this? Because it was quite dramatic and the parents were very concerned. And I would see it. And so, I mean, I can share some of those examples if, if specifics are necessary. But when I saw them and I referred them out to a Children's Hospital and it was confirmed that that's what was going on, I immediately had to kind of change the way that I looked at things. And I need to talk about regression because if I don't, parents may not know what it is. They're not prepared for this. No one's telling them this. No one's telling them that we can do something about this. And keep your eyes open for it so that when you start to see it, we can jump in, even if it's not that. Yes. And let's get back to regression a little bit later, because let's focus on fostering independence first. 
So we've talked about the earlier years. We've talked about earlier teenage years. And let's talk about later teenage years and early adulthood and what we can do to really foster independence and see our friends with Down syndrome thrive during these years. Yes. So, you know, my area of focus is always speech clarity. So I think that's always the number one piece because no matter how good your language skills are, if you can't tell people what you know for them to understand it, we're immediately at a loss and we can't move forward. So giving them, even if if speech clarity isn't possible, then we need to go on to other ways. So do we need AEC help how, so that's our first line of defense is how can we get them to use communication so others understand them. And the number one parent complaint I get is he's so smart. I know how smart he is. He can do all of these things, but no one else knows that. No one sees that. It's just me. They just think he doesn't know things, right? And this is so common all over the board. Teacher said he won't do this. He doesn't know this. He doesn't know this. And the parent's like, he's been doing it for 10 years. He knows all of that stuff, right? It goes back to the answering questions piece. But so for getting them independent, can they communicate effectively from the start? Hi, my name is. I have to start there. (laughs) I really do. I have to work on the first name so often that it's still kind of shocking me because they say it, but you wouldn't know it or you guess wrong right every time. And so what is that? Is that our tick? Is that phonology? Is that voice? What is that? Is it fluency? And it's always all of the above, but more so what I talked about last time was some of that voice and fluency stuff. It kind of creeps in and becomes the main reason they can't be understood in an adult situation because we talk so fast. So first that, then what can they do by themselves? This varies dramatically. So can they pick out an outfit appropriate for the day? No kidding. Can they tell me what they had for breakfast? Can they make their breakfast? Do they ever help in the kitchen? Can they read and respond to an email? If speech is really hard and talking on the phone is really hard for hearing reasons also, can they read and respond to an email? On the whole, the answer to all of those questions is no. And so I'm always shocked, like, okay, you're 21, you're going to be 22 soon, and you're going to lose the insurance that's going to allow you to have maybe me as a therapist or someone else. And we need to make sure you can do those things. We need to, I mean, our goals now, no more worksheets, no more anything. Now, how do we give you some skills that you can do for independent? And so just for our own clarification, because there is such a variety within this population, you're talking about the clients who you are seeing, whose parents are bringing them to your clinic for speech and language therapy during their late teen, early adult years. I think you just said that you've just had several 16 and 17 year old referrals. Yeah, I'm having a kind of an influx of this age. I mean, it happens in the summertime, but I I think it goes back to what we said earlier is that there's a panic level here because we know now how far we've come. Advocacy worked, right? And we see movies and and TV shows and I think it's helping people realize, oh gosh, my child isn't doing that yet. They don't sound like that. Right. So we have some great examples of people with Down syndrome in their young adult years in the media now, which is wonderful to see the progress that they've made. But then some other parents might say, wow, look at him or her. And what else can I do to bridge that gap to help foster independence with my own child? Yeah. And and parents are tired. They've been working really hard towards this. And Absolutely. We as SLPs haven't done a great job, right? So sometimes they don't always trust us. And so they'll take long breaks when it gets worse, because if you don't use it, you will lose it with this population. It's not a bike. You won't just be able to talk clearly again if you stop for a while. That's, I think, when parents are like, oops, we got to go back. Mm-hmm. And so I have a lot of families that'll kind of come and go for those reasons. And that's, you know, I don't fault them for at all. I have two kids that are typically developing. These parents are amazing multitaskers, but everybody gets a little tired, right? And if nothing worked in the past, 
or you get to the point where you try what worked in the past and doesn't work anymore. Right. Because they're older. Mm -hmm. And so now they learn differently, just like any person, you know, you're going to learn differently when you're eight than when you're 17. But I think parents really are looking at, he needs to get a job now. I got to start thinking about this, right? Because there's so much to work on at all times. Our long-term hopes for our kids maybe are a year out. And now as they get older, we got to think about what happens further than that and what they need to be successful to do that. Right, right. Now, independence can vary from client to client and and family to family, what the goals are for independence. Can you talk a little bit about the goals for independence and then some of those skills? Yes. So in terms of goals for independence, I'm still going to hit what we would normally work on as a speech language pathologist, but I'm going to put it in the context of an older person and what it should be. A lot of our people with Down syndrome, they're older, still have younger preferences. So cartoons, interests that are of very much younger children. And so they have trouble talking to peers because they're not kind of engaging or looking at some of the same things their typical peers are looking at. So for example, I had a client where she watched Cinderella every day, every day, and she didn't watch any other things. It was just a few Disney movies. And so as a silly example, you know, we need to expand that past so that we can input, right? So can we give her more appropriate things to watch or engage her in more appropriate independent type activities while I work on my speech and language goals, right? So you can still work on all of your goals, just put it in the context of what's going to help them as they're older. And not everyone is going to experience regression. It's extremely rare. We're only now starting to write about it. It was more of this phenomenon that we thought was early Alzheimer's. And now we're putting it in its own category, but it's rare. But it doesn't mean that we shouldn't get ready for it. And because if we practice those things that will help any type of regression cognitively, we can prolong the onset. And so by prolonging it, what we use in therapy to make them more independent. So putting things into context. So I have, we do, I think you've seen the video a couple of times. We just just to clarify, Jennifer, you're saying regression is rare? Yes, regression is rare. We don't always see it. We're talking about it more, so it seems more rare, but it's in its own category and it's not going to affect every person in the younger years. So I think the youngest I've seen is like 12 years old. The research is more in the 20s and 30s. And usually, though, it's kicked off by an event. But the event, oddly, the ones I keep running into are like siblings going to college or health, something that's happened health-wise or something that's happened within the family unit or a social group or COVID and being home alone and doing my own thing all the time. It's pretty rare to see it have a sudden onset, but it happens. Most parents don't even know what it is. They've never heard about it. No one's ever prepared them. And so part of my job, I believe is to do that. Okay, we're going to work on this so that we don't lose skills. Because when they leave high school, this is a huge problem right now. We went into COVID, school is online, and they're getting worse because they may not have had therapy even if all they're getting is at school, right? So we have this huge life event where they're no longer with people. They're no longer engaged. They're not actively engaged with anyone except their parents, maybe, right? So now we got to get them out there. How do we get these people to, how do we get their families to, to know that they should, to put them in situations where they have social interactions? Most parents are very aware of this, but things like she, you know, they come home from school and then she spends three hours in her room listening to the same songs with headphones or watching the same movies over and over. Um, And it's like pulling teeth to get them to talk at dinner time or something. So, and even worse in the summertime with COVID, right? So how do we, we need to make sure that we can make them engage throughout the day as often as we can. That's what may be one of those huge things that's going to help prevent or help regression subside because it can get better, right? So through people with regression or in those older stages that maybe they've been out of practice because of COVID or whatever, we can make it better. There's a lot of research about 
kind of like in the in the mental health world where we can use some drugs, usually depression drugs is kind of what they're working on right now, in conjunction with me, in conjunction with talking, interacting, using your skills, which is all language, right? Getting you out of the house, getting you physically active, maybe you haven't been, expanding your interests. So moving beyond Cinderella, we're going to watch other things. We're going to talk about other things. We're going to talk at dinner time. We're going to play games where we can kind of go back and forth and play to their strengths and interests. So that's kind of a, I know I give these really big general answers, but in terms of what we do as SLPs is putting it in contexts that are real life. So a lot of times we'll have our, our older teens do their own IEP. We prepare them with cue cards and we practice over and over so they can stand up at their own IEP and tell others about themselves. Here's what I like. Here's what I don't like. Here's what I'm good at. Here's what I want to be when I grow up. No, We don't see that enough. And really take ownership, which is a part of independence. And showing your teachers that you can. You know, I have a beautiful video that I show all the time. And I wasn't there in the video, but the teachers were crying because they just never seen it. They didn't know that person was capable of what they just did. And so that's one of the things we can do when they're in high school. I just forgot what the other one I was going to talk about real quick, but getting them ready for a job, for example. So maybe my language goals are all going to center on interview questions. So we practice interviews over and over and over. What are some common interview questions? And then my speech and language training to answer those questions. And then the same for pretty much anything that they're preparing for. How do we do this? Can they make their own lunch? Can they find groceries in the grocery store? Can they order food at a restaurant? So I have some fun videos of that too. Can they go to Starbucks and order a coffee? We forget those tiny little things that we probably would have done in the teen years all the time, right? But because life is harder and more it's just different or more challenging because of behaviors and opting out and cognitive stuff. A part of our job, I believe, is to tell parents to do these things and then show them. <laughs> we talk about this frustration we have with carryover. They don't do their homework. What's the point of this if they're not going to follow through? I need to go to Starbucks with them. I need to <laughs> meet them at a restaurant. They need to respond to their homework via email or talk to text, or, you know, some of these things, that's my job. Get them communicating in a way that's appropriate for roughly that age. So these are all functional life skills. So just because we are speech-language pathologists, we always have to check to make sure this is within our scope of practice. So can you talk a little bit more about that and the, the training that we have to address these functional life skills? I think we have more training and skills for this than anyone else. We're not being utilized by the medical community because they're really more interested in, you know, drug therapies and that sort of thing. But I mean, those of us who work, and I haven't done this, but those who work in hospital settings, those who work in aphasia, TBI, all of those settings, that's kind of what we're doing, right? We know what to do when skills go away. When skills regress, we have all of those skills. And language is cognition. Whether it's a receptive language or expressive language, we call it that. But that is cognition. We are specifically trained to help these people use knowledge that they have or to kind of regain it. We do this in high school settings more, maybe a little bit more in junior high settings. But after that, what do we do? How do we improve this? Because there don't seem to be here anyway. Families have a heck of a time trying to find a speech therapist. We get find physical therapists all the time. But getting an SLP who knows what to do with this population is really hard. So they aren't reserving these services. And let's talk a little bit more about the, the funding for that and, and why that might be influencing this problem. I shouldn't speak to this because I don't know. I can tell you what I see here, for example. So I'm a private practitioner. Um, I'm a Medicaid provider, but I'm not a Medicare provider. And here anyway, Medicare goes into that home health system. I'm not a home health company. I cannot 
see someone who needs to use that insurance because I'm not a home health company. They have to see someone in their network, if you will, for those services. And that doesn't always exist, or they don't know they should ask for it, or the therapists aren't really sure they do know how to deal with that because we haven't put it in that context for them. I mean, there's definitely a lot of us out there that are doing this, but finding this, then this is what parents have told me here anyway, where do you get that? Where do we get an SLP who understands what's going on and isn't going to use silly worksheets and work on random WH questions? So in terms of how to go about, the funding is going to be different everywhere you go. There's a lot being done politically, not politically, but at a legislative level to make sure that these kids have funds, right? So that when they are older, they have the funds to pay for a lot of this stuff that they got easily when they were little, but not as easily when they're older. Our day programs need to be looked at more closely to make sure that they truly are preparing these individuals for life skills rather than a kind of glorified day camp, right? Are they doing things to help these kids rather than just kind of keeping them safe throughout the day? So I think the funding piece, I'm still doing the research for that. Where's the breakdown? And it's also coming from, there's very few adult clinics for people with Down syndrome. We have children's hospitals that are great, but they can't go there now. Where do they go? We have one here, but it's part-time, it's experimental, and they don't have time to deal with what we do. Quality of life is not their area. Quantity of life, being healthy, being able to have a longer life is their area. So you're referring to a medical clinic, not a speech language pathology clinic. Right. There really aren't any that are specifically, at least here, specifically trying to target older people with intellectual disabilities in a way that allows them to be successful. And we have a lot of biases. We may not think, SLPs may not think that people with Down syndrome that are older can. So is it really worth it? Right? I mean, they don't even know they're having those thoughts. But a lot of time, we just don't feel comfortable because we don't have the knowledge of this group. And that's changing. Thank God that's where the advocacy comes in and the the movies and all of these things. And we're seeing people with Down syndrome do great things. We're seeing them get jobs, do Ironmans, win golf championships, right? I mean, we, we now are seeing this and it's changing. But we have a lot of old biases that we're not always aware of. And I fall into that category too, to remind myself, no, 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 you can do this because at the older ages, they're tired. They have no motivation. They don't seem to have, and I hate saying they, I don't see many adults who have an internal motivation to do something, to get a job, to exercise, to learn how to play the piano. I mean, we don't tend to have that internal drive. It's usually external, what people are telling him to do. I don't know that a young man would decide to do an Ironman by himself and then start training alone, right? We have a long way to go and there's a lot of reasons it's not happening. And that's why I wanted to talk about it more. And that's why I'm going to start talking about it more. And how do I get information out there? That this is what you should work on. Here's what you can do. Here's what they can do. It looks like they can't do much because they they can't even answer a question, right? But pay attention, talk to parents, believe parents, believe caregivers. I think a lot of us think like, oh, mom thinks he can do all these things and he can't, right? Because we don't see it, but we can see it. And how do we get that process more understood by SLPs? Right. And really working with those parents and, and parents know their children best. Absolutely. So they do. Okay, well, I think we have enough time now to talk about your three case studies. Two, I think you mentioned two or three case studies. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about those. Okay, I'm trying to think if I should, the most dramatic one first. It's kind of rare. But anyway, with this young man, I was asked to see him for feeding issues, which is common because that can change as your, you know, your body grows. He had had an episode of choking like five months prior and never ate solid food again, just decided that, nope, that was really scary. Not eating anything I have to chew. Wow. And about how old was he? He just graduated. So I think he was, he was 19. Okay. 
was like, this is strange. I wonder what happened. I'm thinking medical conditions, you know, maybe some dysphagia, you know, what happened? So mom, she knew exactly what to do. But for five months, she blended dinner and he drank it. And I'm like, whoa, what is going on? Well, because more than anything, they need nutrition. Anyone needs nutrition. And as a parent, we're going to, we're going to give that nutrition, but long-term that's not a solution. So they came to see you. Right. And we had to figure out, is this really, is this dysphagia? We need to be very careful here. What's going on? But long story short, I was able to get him eating extremely fast, like two weeks. We would start with, you know, kind of like snacks, figuring out what he liked talking about food a lot, getting him interacting with food a lot. And it turned out that that experience, that traumatic choking experience where he threw up and he was safe, kind of kicked off a lot of other regressions. So we got him eating again, but even in the short time, they ended up moving. So in a very short amount of time, like five months, we went from talking to not talking at all to only wanting to gauge in repetitive activities a lot of younger type things coming on. And then at the very end, difficulty even initiating movement. So standing up and starting to walk could take 20 minutes. And it was just one of those where we were like, oh my goodness. So we immediately got this child into, or adult or young man really, into an exercise program because at least we knew we could do that easier than speech. Right. We're still working on speech all the time. We continued the feeding things. And then that when, you know, the medical side of, of what they were working on in terms of using SSRIs, I heard, I didn't get to see this, but I heard he got better. But because I had seen it before, what if I hadn't seen him? What if I hadn't looked at that and referred him to the doctors? What would have happened? He probably would be catatonic now. Mm-hmm. And I'm dead serious because that's what it looks like. And the research says that that's kind of the end if we're not careful. And so knowing what I had seen in previous cases and the success where regression is reversed, we need to know to refer out quickly. You know, I always thought that regression only happened if it was a medical problem or, you know, something really severe happened. But choking on a hamburger kicked off regression. Right. It was probably there anyway, because it, he had some people that in his life who had left because he was, you know, everybody graduated and he was yeah. less active and right. he was alone more. So there's some things that start this. And so far, at least in my limited experience, it is an event like that where they're spending more time alone. And it sounds like you were the first health professional that they sought. They didn't seek help from their I guess no, because really, I mean, if you look at the, I think I gave in the handout or I can, I, if people want to email me, but there's a list of, if you look up progression and you see the list, it sounds like every person with downstream I've ever met. And so when you go to look this up on your own, you're like, oh, maybe this is just a phase. He just finished school. Well, you know, we'll, we'll kind of, we'll get through this. But knowing now that they may not, it has helped me tremendously by seeing it first and immediately referring and then keeping up my, you know, what I know I can do for active engagement and using their skills so that they don't go away. And the success with the drug trials using SSRIs are extremely positive. It's working, it works if you're putting it into becoming more active. Right. So this obviously is the same thing you would do for someone experiencing dementia and early onset Alzheimer's. It's the same thing. But all of those skills that we use with them, all of our strategies for that are the same. And so now I'm really trying to encourage therapists who are working with this population. These are the things you need to do. I don't care if it never happens, because if you do a good job, it won't. So you'll never know anyway. Let's know it's here. Here's what it looks like. If it looks like this, refer immediately. Let's get going so it doesn't get worse. And you referred to his pediatrician or internist or directly to... Or even mental health, so a psychologist, psychiatrist. Usually I will send them to a pediatrician or a medical doctor first. My very first case, it was much more mild than that. But listening to mom, who was actually kind of in the mental health field, she was like, it looks just like depression. I mean, she was like, it almost looks like bipolar depression. And I was like, oh, I don't know. But I referred out anyway. 
And she got, just like the last one, got worse within a very short amount of time. And actually that mom was like, oh, thank you. I knew this was going on. Knew something was wrong. I knew this wasn't just Down syndrome, but nobody had said anything. And they were in a small town. So I don't know that anyone would have. It was just luck on my part because I was nervous too. You never want to send somebody to a doctor and be like, oh boy, no, she's fine. But I, you know, I don't really care. So I did that. And sure enough, that's what it was. So she was the first one that I saw. And now I'm very, very aware because it was so dramatic and so fast. Right, right. And how old was she? 16. Okay. So it can happen this young. It can happen later. But with her, it was, again, siblings went to college. It was just home with mom and dad. (laughs) But she had lost every interest she had horseback riding, eating, gymnastics, things she loved. She didn't want to do anything at all, ever. And she had a ton of repetitive behaviors, rolling things, stimming a lot, and sad, not talking. That is sad. So you referred her. She got the medical help that she needed. And then did she stay with you? I kind of hear about her every once in a while because they live further away, but it worked so well, they didn't need me a lot. That, and that is our goal, to not be needed, right? Mom was like, she's doing all these things again. She's back. Oh, that's wonderful. So it, it works, I and mean, we have to be able to refer out and not always assume it's the diagnosis. Right. Okay. And there was one more you wanted to share? Yes. I'm trying to find the story in my head because everything is visual for me too. Maybe that's why I like this puppy. (laughs) (laughs) But same idea, lack of all interests, siblings leaving. I'm actually still seeing this person. And siblings leaving, that is developmentally challenging to anyone. And it's happening, right? Because you tend to have your kids close together. So you have one kid leaving, but you have other kids in the queue. So they can be sort of close together in age. So it tends to kind of line up with high school ending, right? Right, Um, right. We have kind of multiple events that change that seem to trigger this. And we do think it's a change in the brain. So this isn't a parenting issue. This isn't a schooling issue. There's something going on in the brain. There's a reason people with Down syndrome almost all get Alzheimer's disease. We're looking into this. The research is heavy now because we know that. She had that, but then the same descriptions. I mean, it's almost like the same recording that the parents tell me. She's not talking anymore. She used to be so funny. She's so funny. She used to sing it on the top of her lungs. She was the life of the party. She had all these interests. Nothing now. She only wants to do one thing, which is, you know, listening to music all day long. And everything that's not that is now a fight. And so immediately, this luckily though, this family had already heard about that and was starting drug therapy when I started with her, but it still helped the family to know because I immediately was like, have you ever heard of regression? And I don't think she knew that word, but she's like, oh yeah, 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 we're seeing someone. And so I was like, ah, thank goodness. So we are still working in terms of getting her to use her voice getting her to her self-confidence back. She doesn't trust herself and she doesn't have any internal desire to do it yet. And that's where those drugs kind of come in. So, oh, if I feel better and I'm kind of up a little bit, then what I'm doing is going to kind of help that as well. Now, I will warn people that some of these drug things, just like any other drug, they'll always start with this very, very small dose right? And then we may have to switch medications. We may have to raise the dose. We may have to add one. That can be goofy for a while. But in any case, at least she's going to doctor's appointments. She's going to therapy appointments. Now her parents know how to keep her active and things that she's supposed to do. Her funniness is coming back. You know, she'll just flat out tell me, nope, no, (laughs) hate that. You know, <laughs> that's initiation. That's what we want. That's part of our executive function, right? Yes. And so when she does that, I'm like, okay, you know, I follow what she tells me. So I wanted to, 
we, we're almost out of time, but I wanted to touch on two things. One was executive function with this population. And the other is if you have just a few minutes to share some of the, the exciting success stories out there. I know you mentioned in another presentation about a business that specifically hires people with Down syndrome, as well as some of the college and community college programs. Because as we said, there is such a variety of skills and levels of independence within this population. For executive functioning, can you answer my question right now? So tell me about why you want this job. Where do you see yourself in five years? Holy moly. You know, that's a big open-ended question. And a lot of, if we haven't prepared them for that question, right, you're not going to get a good answer and they may not know how to answer it. Or they're often going to say, this is what I get a lot and I don't know why it cracks me up, but they want to be a rock star and live in a bus. And, you know, they... Part of the reason I mentioned that is it's adorable, it's funny, but it's not okay, right? You're probably not going to be a rock star, so that's a cool goal. I was, I was a rock star too, but maybe we should look at some of these other things and kind of, you know, lead them in that direction. Working on those questions for interviews, maybe they want to work at a certain restaurant. So, well, with teletherapy is so fun because we can put stuff in, you know, our backgrounds and our green screens. So I was just talking to a therapist yesterday who's working with one of our teens and she popped on Zoom for a meeting and she was at Chipotle. And I was like, are you at a, <laughs> but it was a, a background that she had because she had been working with a team on, okay, let's order at Chipotle. What is Chipotle? You want to work here. So let's learn about that. The amount of information we can hold right here to say also kind of correlates with how long our utterances are. I think I forgot to mention that before. So if I can remember four things, it's pretty likely I can say four words at a time really well. It's not that I can't say more, but that seems to be my brain's you know, way of chunking things. And we all have that. But that executive functioning to use for interview questions, right? So knowing how to keep that information to answer a question and then kind of gearing that into what their next steps are. Are they going to college to a, a school that does education programs for people with intellectual disabilities or other disabilities? Kind of like it's kind of, for me, it's kind of like Special Olympics for the brain that are finally popping up knowing people with Down syndrome have a very specific way of learning. So now we know how to teach them. And now we can go to college and we can learn bigger things and we can do those things. And watching these teens who get to do that, simply knowing that you're going to do that, simply knowing that you have a positive future, looking into the future and planning for it, that alone can help protect the brain from kind of any regression because you're active again and you have this excitement and you're good at it, right? And you're working toward that goal of independence. Right. Or they're getting a job. You know, we see Biddy and Bose on the East Coast and they're opening franchises all over. Will you tell us a little bit more about that? I don't know a lot. I did go, I was in North Carolina a few years ago when I, we saw, I, while I was there, I saw a, a news program on this restaurant and I'd never heard about it before. And so I immediately, we went the next day and, and ordered coffee, but it's, it's a coffee shop and they hire people with intellectual disabilities. They're there when you walk in, that's who's on the register. That's who's taking orders. And then this woman, she's amazing, ended up winning, you know, the CNN heroes thing that had started. And now she's opening or helping other people open franchises. We have places like Gigi's Playhouse, which are also franchised across the country for younger people, where you can go and get interaction or services, you know, at very little cost. And so we're finally seeing these programs. And there's so many more other than than Biddy and Bo's, right? I don't know if Tim was this kind of celebrity in the in the Down syndrome world and he I hate to tell the story because I don't know. I've met him, but I don't know him. But he worked at a restaurant when he was in high school. And so he and it fit perfectly with his outgoing personality. And he kind of and then he went on to open a restaurant, you know, with, with parents' help. Oh, that's exciting. Right. But simply knowing that and doing those things, even Special Olympics, even anything that's active is going to help our young adults do more. And this is every human. This isn't just Down syndrome. Right, right. But we don't think about it 
necessarily with this population. We just assume it's beyond them. And what we see on TV or a movie is an exception. And I think it is an exception, but not because they have Down syndrome, but because someone pushed them to do that. They are capable of so much more than we know. And guess what? That's what parents have been saying the whole time. But they're parents. They aren't therapists. They're not doctors necessarily. So I really do feel it is our job because we are with them a lot, even in you know junior high and high school. We should be thinking about graduating from high school and what's next and keeping active so that we don't lose skills that we've worked so hard to gain. And there's hope if that started. Well, thank you so much, Jennifer. It was great to talk with you. And thank you for offering your email out to those therapists who would like more information. Yes, please. I respond to emails quickly. And, and that, yes, you do. And that email is in your references, just for clarification. Is that correct? That we're in? Yes. And then you, you, know, if you even just find me on the internet or through our website, um, which is grayspeaktherapy.com, G-R-A-Y, not E-Y. But you can find me there. I love talking about this. And I, I really, truly believe that SLPs need to know this information and where to get it. Well, thank you. We really appreciate you being here. You've given us so much information that we can use. So thank you. We look forward to seeing you again. Thank you. Thanks for joining us here at Keys for SLPs, providing keys to open new doors to better serve our clients throughout the lifespan. Remember to go to speechtherapypd.com to learn more about earning ASHA's CEUs for this episode and all podcasts offered by speechtherapypd.com. Until next time, I'm your host, Mary Beth Hines. Keep up the good work.